Sup, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is July 9th, 2020. Happy to be with you today. First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that make the podcast possible by donating a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver bullion dealers over at JM Bullion. They have been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and for a very good reason. They're a great company to do business with. They have wonderful inventory. They turn around their orders very quickly. And gold and silver, by the way, are nearing all-time highs. If you listen to this show, you're probably well aware of that at this point as the Federal Reserve Print Fest looks like uh, there are no signs of stopping at any point in the immediate future. JM Bullion is the only place that I buy my gold and silver from. So I'm not just uh, the president, I'm also a member, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I love that they support the podcast, but they have me as a customer anyways. So this is not a bullshit endorsement. And QTR podcast listeners have their own saleswoman at JM Bullion, the lovely Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email, tell her QTR sent you, you want free shipping, you want a discount, she'll uh, she'll take care of you. My dear friends over at JM Bullion. This podcast is also brought to you by my very good friends over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is an online day trading community that offers everything from investor education to daily live streams to a watch list every morning. Man, what a great tool it is to have extra people around you if you're a trader and extra ideas floating around. And that is exactly what the Trader's Path was made for. Pete Hedges, my buddy that started the Trader's Path, he started the service because he got tired of the other day trading services that he was using because he felt like they didn't give a shit about him. They thought, he thought maybe they were front-running his trades and just out to collect his money. So he wanted to start an honest day trading community full of regular people. I know Pete well. I'm happy to endorse him. He's an honest guy, and he's been a longtime supporter of the podcast. So if you're interested in joining a day trading community, check out my friends over at The Trader's Path. Link to that is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. If you're trying to track unusual options activity, you're trying to track big money to come into the market because you want to be a fucking paper chaser, the Sang Lucci Steam Room is the one piece of software that gets it done. It can pay for itself very quickly if you don't use it like a herb. And it is run by my friend Sang Lucci and my brother Wall Street Jesus. These guys are the OGs of tracking options activity. And then using that options activity to maybe figure out where equities are going to go. It is a strategy that they've been using for 10 years that they've refined. And also, my dear friend Sanglucci offers a master course, which is a financial education without all the bullshit jargon and nonsense of the financial world. And he offers the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader. The links to those are in my podcast description as well, and I have the wonderful Charlie Bathgate on today, who is part of the Sanglucci crew, so I'm sure we'll get into some of the shit that he's been up to as well. This podcast additionally is brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, my buddy Crichton Titus, and some of my newest patrons, Susan signed up today. Thank you very much. Uh, Charles Zivkinev, thank you, my friend. 
Uh, Phantom Dills is in the house. Tim Davis and Nick Beer. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. It really means a lot to me. Jake Gordon, Aaron, and uh, Jay Powell. Thank you guys. And some people that have been with me for a while, like Ginger Soros. I appreciate you continuing to support the podcast, as well as Andrew Marsh and Jeff Barnes, uh, John Zaleski, Peter McOslin, Cardwell Lynch. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast. Today's podcast has a two-drink minimum, just like all of my podcasts. So if you're a long-time listener, you've already fulfilled that requirement. And if you're new, this is the point in the recording where I give you three seconds to find a bottle of whiskey and hit it twice. Time's up. What do you think about that? That reminds me of the old cassettes. You'd be listening to somebody and be like, turn cassette over. (laughs) This podcast today is not investment advice. It is not trading advice. It is not life advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I'm not a certified financial planner. I'm not a chartered financial analyst. I don't have any SEC licenses. Folks, I'm basically sitting around like a degenerate with my tattoos and my alcohol and just having one diary of the mouth after the next. So none of this is investment advice. Don't listen to anything that I say or my guest. Those are my disclaimers. Do your research elsewhere, fools. On with me today, my brother Charlie Bathgate. He is managing partner and CEO of Sanglucci.com. You're the CEO of Sanglucci.com. Does Sanglucci know that? <laughs> Not yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the news to him any day now. How can you be the CEO of Sanglucci.com? Doesn't Sanglucci need to be the CEO of Sanglucci.com? No, man. He's just a pretty face. Come on. Ah, he, doesn't do he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do any work. Just trades options and uh, shows up to webinars. That's it. <laughs> Charlie oversees all day-to-day operations, uh, product development, company strategy, and he also acts as a consultant f- to both for-profit and non-profit organizations in the mental health and psychedelic space. Mr. Bathgate, what the hell is going on, my friend? It's been too long since you've been on. I know, man. We were just saying uh, last time we talked, I think, was November, and a whole lot has changed in the world. A lot has <laughs> so. changed. It was actually October. Really? Even yeah. More. So it's been a minute, yeah. man. How the hell are you? How are you uh, You know, holding up pandemic-wise? What's been up? Pan- pandemic-wise? I think I'm holding up well, you know? I think uh, on a relative basis, I mean, I live in the Bay Area, so it hasn't been too insane like it's not we have friends and family who are in new york city and i think the experience there was exponentially more intense um you know for us we got real stir crazy obviously with shelter in place and my wife and i were like jesus you know how many more conversations can we have with one another before we just go completely nuts um but uh we got a little pitbull puppy right in the beginning of when it happened like about a month before COVID really kicked in, which was incredible timing because he's like great to hang out with, great entertainment, great distraction. And um, I think here now things are opening up. People are starting to do like very limited and sort of responsible socializing. So we're starting to feel a little bit of reprieve from the the cabin fever. Um, I think we also had a really good leg up in that I was used to working from home. It's kind of like some traders who I talked to who sit in front of their screens every day and from their home office. Right. And they're like, you know, not much has changed for me in the world of COVID. Like, I'm, I'm pretty used to this. Um, I felt like I was pretty acclimated to 
a lot of the challenges that that were really throwing a lot of my my friends uh, for a loop who who were not used to it. So can't really complain, but certainly looking forward to this being unraveling as as time goes on whenever that actually happens yeah i got lucky there too that not much had to change with me in terms of the job front or in terms of my daily routine but for a lot of people it has properly fucked up the works for them yes 100 percent. i mean this is something that it is something that i i think it's really made me realize how much I take for granted. The, the, it has actually positively affected our business as it has a lot of trading education businesses and trading services. You know, there's been a, I'm sure we'll talk about everything with Robinhood and whatnot, but there's been a, you know, a, a rush of people to, to get into this space and that's benefited us. Um, and, you know, I have friends who have, who work for companies or who have, have their own startups who, you know, they got crushed. They, you know, they're, they're done. Um, and when I have moments when I get stressed out by, uh, you know, I haven't been able to, whatever it is, see friends or go to a restaurant in, you know, two months or however long it's been, um, I, I definitely have moments where I step back and say, dude, um, this is best case scenario. Like there's there's people who have it just horrible right now. So um, yeah, certainly cannot complain. No, I'm right there with you. It, you know, you sent me that article on Robinhood today and suggested that we talk about it. And I thought it was an awesome idea for the podcast. Uh, essentially, what we have seen here over the last, and it's kind of, it's been the butt of jokes here over the last, I don't know, six months, really yeah. as the pandemic has unwound at the same time and has been occurring, we have seen this huge shift to kids, essentially, young kids, unsophisticated investors, retail investors, using their Robinhood app because it's easy and it's free and it's accessible and they can play it on their phone like they're playing a, any other game app to mm -hmm. enter into the stock market. And it's an interesting time for that with what the Fed is doing, essentially eliminating price discovery. So these people are entering the market at a time where there's really no rules and you don't really need to know about fundamental valuation, which is great because most of them don't. <laughs> and, and they're, you know, they are coming in and really changing the market. I mean, X price discovery, when you take that out of the equation and the fundamentals don't matter, it really empowers these types of traders to go in and just trade bullshit and garbage. And that's yeah. what they've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's a. I think it's a complicated conversation. It's it's actually it's a good one to have in in this kind of context where we have time to to really dig into this stuff. Um, I mean, the fact we've seen a lot of people coming into our services and into our community who match the stereotype of the Robinhood trader. You know, more often than not, if someone comes into our community and they say that they're using Robinhood. They are inexperienced and they are naive as to the risk that they're taking on and how difficult it is, you know, what they're actually trying to do. Um, and so we've had a lot of misgivings around this for, for a while. And we've, you know, I think like there's, it's very problematic to think about, you know, the gamification of, of trading and, and like the, the question of should we be making it that much easier for inexperienced market participants to get into the market, you know, my answer is no, <laughs> I don't think so. And I think that people from, 
there's a there's a quote from this New York Times article from one of the founders of, of Robinhood who's basically making the argument that you know people from that everyone should be able to participate in, in the market and participate in that sort of um, you know wealth accumulation that you can experience if you obviously have money allocated toward you know toward equities. But I think that's misleading in that if you look historically. Um, people who day trade, like encouraging people to day trade is not going to increase their probability of, of generating, you know, long-term wealth outside of their, their primary means of income. If you're saying people should be passively invested in, you know, a basket of stocks or an ETF or something, that's, that's a completely different conversation. But, um, I think, you know, you've got, you've got a bunch of people who are, you know, super inexperienced coming to the market and, no one's <laughs> there's there's just such a there's such a lag of education out there. I mean, the, and it's I think for people who are in the markets on a daily basis like us, we know that it's a jungle. We know that you know you're you're going up against the best and the brightest every single day, no matter whether you're placing a trade from your phone or whatever. Um, and it's sort of strange for us to think that someone would have to explain that to other to to people coming into um, coming onto these platforms, but. It's clearly necessary because there's 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 people who are getting themselves into just super um, you know bad situations and and the worst you know the worst case scenario is this this situation with with Alex Kearns um, that they talk about in the article and I think you were you were tweeting about it a good bit too when that first happened of um, you know this kid who's 20 years old and saw that number on his account down 730 grand and um, and he killed himself you know and that's just that's 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 the worst case scenario. That's as bad as it can get. There was another article today that I saw that said Robinhood had to install bulletproof glass at their headquarters because yeah. the people that had lost money were showing up and causing a ruckus. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. I don't necessarily agree with you in the sense that they need to do more to protect investors. I mean I feel like, hey, if people want to go in and have a go at the market, then that's their right to do that. Uh, you know, I, look, I'm not this pro-regulation guy. I'm, you know, I think the pattern day trader rule is stupid. I think this rule where you can't take more than, you can't withdraw from your savings account more than six times in a month or whatever it is. All these federal rules are ridiculous where they think that they're looking out for people's best interests. And I think the, the, the interesting thing about Robin hood. Well, first let's talk about this unfortunate incident. What happened with this uh, kid, Alex was that he had some options that were being adjusted, right? Like over the weekend, they were either in, in the money or out of the money, or they were either selling them to get him out of a call or, they were doing some type of adjustment to the account. If you trade options, you understand that sometimes, like on a Saturday when you log into an account, sometimes you'll see some funky stuff while they're uh, taking all the expired options out of your account. Or if you leave options slightly in the money at the end of the week, you know sometimes they get exercised. Uh, there's all different ways for brokerages to handle it, but at some point, Robinhood was engaging in some transaction to take care of an options position in this kid's account, and it printed a negative balance in his cash of like minus seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And this was yeah. like this was the most unfortunate incident because the kid didn't really understand what he did wrong. He didn't understand how he got there, and 
you know, I said to the gentleman that I was speaking with about this, even if he had known about bankruptcy laws, you know, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the unfortunate thing is, even if that was a real number in his account, which it wasn't, you know, you, you file for bankruptcy and it goes away. Uh, right. So this was the most unfortunate of incidents because he didn't understand why it was there and he didn't understand how big or small of a deal it was. And and that is, you know, that's that's just unfortunate. That's just it's a terribly unfortunate situation. Agreed. Totally. Um, yeah. And I, I agree with your point generally that like it's not it's not any company's um if people want to go on and and trade in the markets, they should be able to do that. Um, and it's not, and every, there has to be a degree of personal responsibility. I mean, right. in this Times article, they start out and they're they're inter- the the example of that they give is is a guy who is you know he's he's taking out home equity loans to to buy and sell stocks when he doesn't really have much experience, and it's 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 kind of like there has to be some measure of responsibility for that, right? I mean, you can't just expect. What do you expect? What do you think that the market is? <laughs> well, what, you know, the hell, you just... what the hell is the central bank telling us, Charlie? What the hell is the government telling us? They're really right. telling everybody to lever up. They've fixed yeah. interest rates at zero. Debt is a way of life for them. Right. So they're telling the public it's okay to lever right. up and to do this. Right. You can't get a yeah. yield anywhere else. Yeah, for sure. And then if you look at the combination between that and how easy it is to place trades quickly on on platforms like this and yeah i mean i just, I just think like the gamification there's i have some i have a, a little bit of an axe to grind with robin's approach in particular because it strikes me as a good example of like a tech company that is looking at that unicorn you know multi-billion dollar valuation and not necessarily thinking about the ramifications of what that growth could be you know i mean if you they're targeting a really young audience who is by definition inherently uneducated about the nature of the markets what happens if you get you know that population of the country into trading and you are incentivizing them to trade as much as possible like majority of them are going to lose money you know so that's that that's that's a little bit of a problem but at the end of the day each individual has to be responsible for their you know for their own actions and yeah of course given what you just said in the context of what's going on sort of macroeconomically and then the introduction of a platform like this and then COVID with everybody sitting around bored and you know, there's no sports to watch. Like they're looking for, for their right. kind of, you know, dopamine fix elsewhere. Like it's kind of a perfect storm that this shit's going to start happening. So, and it's uh, really such yeah. a, it's such a change in the overall environment for the market in general, because wall street used to be this thing 30 years ago 40 years ago that was only accessible to professionals and to brokers and to floor traders and then you know the extremely wealthy and then that kind of graduated to all right well you had a local brokerage and you could go in and there was a lot of passive investing and a lot of blue chips and that slowly morphed into scott trade and e-trade and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you could get these individualized brokerage accounts but you still kind of had to have a clue what the fuck you were doing to sign mm-hmm. up. I mean, there were tons of forms involved, you, you know, wiring money and getting checks to your account was like a 10 fucking week process. It was a huge deal. <laughs> and that kind of graduated into, I don't know, maybe 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, all right, so retail players are stepping into the market a little bit more. Ameritrade, Schwab now gearing their products towards retail, but really making it an app on the phone and making it accessible from the app store and making it free and making no deposit minimums and making fractional shares a thing, it opens the fucking floodgates to a whole (laughs) tranche of people that otherwise would not be involved in the market. And so it's crazy for them, but it's also crazy for other market participants, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the traders, some of the more experienced traders that we have in the room, um, or a guy, I do like a limited amount of coaching right now. And and one of the guys I coach is a guy who's, who's, who's been doing it for 20 years. And he's he's had a lot of days where we're talking and he's like, I just don't understand how it's this easy right now. Like who, what, what is, how, how has, has, have these sort of like arbitrage not been wiped out by the market. And I have to think that it's because it's just all these new naive, like completely uninformed traders just coming in, like offering up their, you know, their bank accounts to, to more experienced participants. Like it's, it's a, it's a whole and different. Putting bids yeah. under total dog shit too. I mean, it's one thing to not understand that you're trading a company that's overvalued. It's another thing to not understand that you are trading a total fraud. And that's what I've been watching. Well, they don't care. They don't care. I I think think the majority of the people coming in and and trading like this, they don't care. You're right. You're right when you said at the beginning of the conversation that they're not looking at fundamental, you know, company fundamentals or anything. Because it's it's I think it's literally a game for them. I think it is. It's more of an arcade. It's it's like a short term. Anything that has to do with fundamental analysis is 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 bringing it into a real world connection and relationship to real world circumstances. That in their mind, that's not the environment that they're participating in. They're they're participating in more of a game. And there's a lot of people that I think are going to have to learn the hard way. Just to go back to what I was saying, there's one company I'm watching in particular where people are lashing out at short sellers that are very clearly, in my opinion, exposing what appears to be egregious fraud. I mean, you know, I have a decade of experience in doing this. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm watching (laughs) these people that have, you know, started FinTwit accounts six weeks ago on there, you know, fighting for their right to defend the world's worst company, and they don't even know why they're doing it. And to mm. me, to me, Charlie, there's a lot of analogs to the lottery and the casino. What I mean by that, I was reading an article yesterday on the psychology of casinos. And one of the things that they talked about, you know, they talk about all the things. There's no windows, the patterns mm-hmm. on the carpets, the lights and the noises, trading. They're the, pumping that oxygen in there. Yeah, like all that. yeah. Fucking feeding you booze. They're trading the dollars <laughs> in for chips so that they don't mean anything. But the one thing that I saw was, you know, they're constantly posting the signs of the big winners around. You walk into a casino and there's always some life-size cardboard cutout of some idiot that won, you know, $57,000 on a slot machine. And when I go to Reddit Wall Street bets, which I don't often, but when I go there, I see these threads, which appear to me to be truthful, where some peckerhead puts... (laughs) five hundred dollars into fucking amazon weekly calls and rides the federal reserve's tidal wave to make you know a quarter of a million dollars in two weeks 
So I look at yep. that and I look at what these other people that are just starting are thinking. Not only does it encourage uh, super speculative investments and options, but it, it tells them that it's possible when 999 times out of 1,000 it isn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how many industries like thrive on that. You know, the I, it reminds me of when I worked in, when I graduated college for three years, I worked in film in LA. And there's always a new story every three months of some kid screenwriter who sold his first script for you know two million dollars to to uh you know paramount or whatever and then for every one of them that mints like another thousand attempting screenwriters who are taking night classes at ucla and usc and you know working at jobs at restaurants and stuff and you know it's 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 just one of multiple examples of how many industries are just fueled by that you know putting that per that that uh extremely low probability scenario on a pedestal yeah um yeah and you see it so much with options too man i mean honestly the worst some of the people who have the worst time really learning how to trade consistently that we see come into our into our business are people who were messing around and they bought like a a weekly option on like friday that was beaten down that was like five cents or something just some like lottery and they got completely lucky and it went through the roof and they made, I don't know, 15 grand, 20 grand in a day. And that literally like sears into their neurocircuitry. Like, oh, not only do I get an incredible feat of rush from doing this, but I know how to do this. Like it gives right. them all of a sudden this, this, this sense of control and, and mastery over something that is, that was a result of complete happenstance. And those people, unfortunately, it's really hard to, to, to get them to retrain and to like let go of that that memory um, because it's just such a powerful experience to, to have something like that happen. So, yeah. yeah. It's one of these like sick gambler's fallacies, right? Where if you win, your brain tells you it's possible to win. So you just keep coming back thinking you're going to win again the same way you did. And if right. you lose, your brain tells you that you're going to win on the next one. And keep pull, <laughs> keep pulling the slot machine lever, right? Right. Yeah. And there's the bias of you know attributing some measure of personal um, responsibility to to the outcome when in reality it's for a lot of times just complete luck. So and then you get all these like really seasoned traders who are doubting themselves on a daily basis. <laughs> They're like, I think you know I've been doing this for for 15 years, but I, I swear I'm just getting lucky. Like tomorrow's going to be the day that everybody realizes that you know the market tells me that I'm a fraud the whole imposter syndrome thing. So, um, yeah, the psychology of all this is, 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 is fucking nuts. And it's, uh, it's not happening on a playing field where there are rules. It's taking yes. place on this, uh, I don't know, like entropic kind of open space where anything is possible and the numbers don't matter. I mean, thanks to the central banks... And thanks to our government and really the Fed. I mean, the Fed's sole mandate to keep the stock market propped up at any cost. It just renders all the other variables that would be used as guiding points for an experienced trader useless. Yeah, And for sure. You can sit there and look at a company like Tesla, which has a $250 billion market cap. And you can say this is the most obvious short I've ever seen. 
But is it, though, if the fundamentals don't matter anymore? <laughs> I mean, it's like we've hit escape velocity almost, and that the the usual laws of physics, if we're like on planet Earth, just no longer apply to the economy. Um, I've talked. I, I can't. I, I've. I'm yet to have somebody give a coherent explanation of why. I mean, ba basically, besides what you just said, that there is no explanation of why the market is performing in the way it is and, and when you have the underlying economy with the dynamics of what's going on. It's just like, it's it's just completely separated. There's no longer a correlation in a way. So yeah, you're right. We're in this sort of like lawless floating, uh, you know, entropic is a good way to put it. It's, it's, it's just like, what are we, what are we even doing here? What is happening? <laughs> what are we participating in? Makes you question the nature of reality. And so what do you guide the, the, it's just interesting, man. The stocks that are on my screen that I watch on a daily basis, I don't, I don't play in all of them, but there are names right. on my screen. Like I'm watching GSX right now, right? There seems to be an overwhelming amount of evidence that something fucky is going on at GSX. But, <laughs> but when that evidence dropped at thirty or forty dollars a share, or twenty dollars a share, whatever it was. It appears to me that somebody pulled the borrow and then there were a lot of out of the money calls going off and the stock has gone from 20 or 30 to 80 on no material news, just uh, market mechanics. And the whole thing with Tesla, everybody knows how I feel about that. I mean, when that stock made its first run from three or 400 up to 900 something back right as the pandemic was unfolding early this year. Uh, I noticed the call buying come in because it was really egregious then. It was the stock was trading three or four hundred and the call buying was coming in in like the October 2020 thousands. And you were like, holy mm -hmm. shit, like what is going on there? What's somebody doing in the thousand strike calls with a stock at 300? Even in the case of a buyout, you know, if it's at 300, you'd expect it to get bought out at 500. You know, with right. no real clear path to continued profitability and a lot of questions around the accounting and the fucking call, cars are falling apart and the CEO's in outer space. And you're like, <laughs> eh, what's going on? But here we are today, $1,400 a share. Yeah. And even the analysts I was reading on Zero Hedge this morning, uh, Adam Jonas's note from Morgan Stanley. He has an $1,800 spread on his price target for Tesla. He said Jesus. Tesla should come in somewhere between $280 and $2,000 a share. <laughs> what is that? What good does that do anybody? Is that real? That's that is that's a real... I wish I had the article up here. But basically, he said, all right, uh, we don't really know what to attribute this move to in Tesla shares. So right. he wrote this note that basically says the great feelings that hope gives you or some fucking soap opera <laughs> bullshit nonsense. The great, the Americans are feeling hope when they buy Tesla stock. Isn't that beautiful? That That's the explanation for the fucking thousand dollars a share. It's like moron... Look at the fucking options market. What kind of an what kind of an analyst are you? You know, you're late already, all right? And you're missing the fucking point. If I can figure out something fucky's going on, you should be able to. I'm the I'm like the world's biggest fucking dumbass when it comes to this stuff. Right? And then he ends the note, Charlie. 
He ends the note by saying, well, we think shares will come in somewhere between 280 and 2,000. <laughs> Thank you for your services. How much do we owe you for this? Yes, for this report? right? People are fucking paying for that. That's fucking wild. Yeah. I mean, the guys in our room, you were, you were saying like, what, you know, what do you tell people who are trading in this environment? The good thing about the guys in our room who, you know, who are watching flow, watching the unusual options activity, or they're, you know, like Lucci, they're just reading tape. It's like, they're very, they're, they're just looking at the orders, right? They're looking at the orders. They're going to cause moves in these names. And they're looking at a time frame that I think it's easier to trade in this kind of environment where it's, you know, day trading to, to some swing trades. But, um, I think if you're someone who's in your position where you're looking at, you know, the fundamentals of a business and how that correlates to the stock price, this has just got to be like, yeah, it's infuriating, right? I mean, it's it's just a whole new ballgame. It's a whole new paradigm. There's there's no there's no correlation. So, and we just tell people like, keep your eyes on the flow. <laughs> Clearly, I mean, we have every once in a while I'll, I'll pop in the room. You know, I'm not trading on a daily basis, but I'll pop in the room and see what people are talking about. And they'll say shit like kind of what you were just talking about with Tesla. Like, yeah, somebody knows something in Tesla right now or somebody, you know, someone's fucking around in XYZ because you can look at what they're doing. You know, you can see the footprints of it. And, uh, and their whole goal is not to, not to be, um, not to be too smart. Basically just follow what those guys are doing. You know, they're the ones that are going to cause a move. So don't overcomplicate it. Follow, follow where the money's going. Yeah. I guess maybe chasing paper and day trading and watching flow might be the new, might be the new strategy, right? Because it, I've been watching these Twitter posts of people are just making jokes about value investing being dead and, I can't say that's a that sad I, thing. Yeah, I can't that's say that I thing. blame them though, because you could literally have a company trading with a market cap uh, or an enterprise value of a hundred million dollars right now, and mm-hmm. that company could be sitting on five hundred million dollars in tangible assets that the market is not giving it value for, and a value investor would say, "Oh, well, there's a play." Like. That's a, you know, that's a quadruple right from where it is now. We just got to figure out how to unlock the value. But that's, that's, that shit's not a given anymore. There's no discounting the, you know, future sum of cash flows or, hey, you know, the the company has this much intangible equity. So the equity price should be this, that, and the other. I mean, there's some of it, I, I guess. But when you swing the gate in the other direction, you have insolvent companies on paper just the worst of the worst dog shit that is being... I mean, uh, look, the Nikola IPO just happened. The company has no revenue. And it got upgraded this morning on valuation. It's got a $30 billion enterprise value, I think. All right? I don't think it's ever made a dollar in revenue. I don't know where it's going to be fucking 40 years from now. Maybe it'll rule the planet. But how do you assign it a $30 billion valuation right now? How do you upgrade it? How do you, you, as a sane human being, make a sell-side note where you take the word upgrade and you put it next to that stock symbol, knowing full well they have not generated $1 of revenue? Can you answer that, Charlie Bathgate? That is the question. No. 100% 100% cannot, <laughs> I, am, I cannot answer that. I mean, this is the first, I'm, I've had my head up my ass to a certain degree with some of the work we're doing on our on our platform. So I haven't even like heard about this. I'm looking at it right now. I mean, this is insane. This is just one of those headlines where you look at and you think 
all right, in five years or 10 years, we're going to look back and this is going to be one of those, yeah, no shit. This was a, a harbinger of horrible things to come. Like you can't have this kind of stuff happening and expect that the economy is not going to, you know, have horrible consequences as a result. I mean, this is just terrible. If we, if we really do get to the point where, you know, a practice like value investing is actually just no longer has any utility to it, then that is, that's a horrible uh, sign for, for the U.S., for the overall U.S. Well, there's economy. no I'm, price discovery. Yeah. How do you even price a bond right now? How do you price a corporate bond right now with the Fed in the corporate mo- bond market? I mean, not only is it sickening that they're backstopping these companies, many of which are dog shit. The rest of them don't fucking need it. Not only is it sickening that they're doing that, but what's the what is the effect on corporate bond prices i mean how do you you know if you're a corporation how do you issue a bond and and know what kind of coupon that you want to charge on your bond how do you measure how do you even measure the risk yeah is there risk (laughs) these are all good questions i mean seriously does risk exist anymore dude i mean clearly it does for some people right i mean we're just talking about this for time for robin hood traders it does but i don't know if uh I don't know if it does for, you know, other participants. Like if you're know. if you're Hertz, okay, and you go bankrupt because of a legitimate economic reason, people have stopped traveling and your balance sheet is dog shit, right? Which is right. why you're supposed to go bankrupt when your underlying business crumbles and you've done a terrible job of managing your balance sheet to begin with. And you have to file for bankruptcy. As an executive, what are you thinking watching all these other companies get bailouts? Yep, that's not good. Where's, where's, and plus, didn't Hertz get a huge, um, didn't, didn't after they filed bankruptcy, didn't they, I can't remember what happened, didn't they issue a bunch of new shares? Yeah, they tried or, to. Yeah. They tried to issue worthless equity shares because our fucking wonderful market was still assigning, I don't know, a billion dollar valuation to equity that will be worth a zero at some point. <laughs> and uh, and so being the being the wonderful people they are, some bank decided, all right, well, we should do an equity offering here and see if we can't just scoop up a billion dollars for the creditors directly out of the pockets of the dumbasses on Robinhood. And then it became such a big deal and it became bad PR, Charlie, for, right. I guess, the regulators that they stopped it. Well, we can't let this happen. It's like you did. It's only a week after the fact that everybody flipped the fuck out about it that you stopped it. Right. Yeah. So where's the hope, man? What do we do? What do we do in this situation? Guide us to the light. I don't really know. I, I really don't. There's, there's no price discovery. There's no risk. They will do everything that they need to do to keep the market looking healthy, yeah. even if it's not. Yeah. And that yeah. is going to sacrifice a lot of other... Uh, economic variables. So how do you even teach somebody about the market in that environment, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, like, we just do, first of all, we have been cautioning people to just ch- chill the fuck out as much as possible. You know, don't get caught up in the exuberance. <laughs> like, you know, keep your, try and stay grounded as much as you can. Um, and honestly, the, the the mental health side of things, originally when, when the story about Alex Kearns and, and his suicide came out, um, we thought we didn't, we didn't know the, the full story behind it. Um, in that, you know, it was actually 
we thought we we thought he had actually um, accumulated positions to that degree and then committed suicide. It, that it wasn't a result of. Um, from my understanding, it's, it was both kind of a glitch in the platform that they have since right. fixed, but and all, and also reporting based on options positions that he that he had from what you said. But you know, we've had a lot of conversations in, in our community around mental health and, and trading recently, and um, I think that there's people whose heads have been really fucked up. You know, people who have been in in the markets for a while who had kind of an approach and had something that that worked for them, and then in this new environment where, um, you know, correlations that used to hold true are no longer true. And there's all sorts of different types of activity and participants in there. They've just gotten really thrown for a loop. And, but at the same time, there was so much discussion, especially when COVID first started happening of people on Twitter and whatnot, or wall street bets, like talking about how they're just, you know, murdering it. And, and, you know, this is the time to, you know, to make your, your yearly nut. Um, and so we definitely had to have conversations with people saying like, Hey, chill out. Like there's always, (laughs) the market is always going to be, uh, there's always going to be opportunity for, you know, for people who understand how to, who have skill sets like reading tape and, and trading flow and, and have a pretty good understanding of how options work. Like, you know, go at it in, in a measured way. And often those conversations were happening with, with younger people, you know, um, guys who are like young, you know, t- early twenties, some, you know, still in college and they just have this insane appetite, um, to, 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 you know, make their, make their mark as fast as possible. Um, and we were just, a lot of the, the veterans and the, the older guys in the room were just saying, dude, just chill out. This, this is not the time to start swinging for the fences. So, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the best you can do right now. And then keep, and again, like keep your eye on, on, the actual activity that's causing these moves. You know, if you're, if you're trading in, uh, on, on a daily basis and day trading or, or swing trading and, you know, small enough time frame, you can see, you know, the footprints of, of this activity that's causing these moves that, that you want to catch. So just keep your eye on that shit. What do, you, block out the rest of it. what do you say to people that want to ask you, is this the new norm? What's going on with the market now, right? We are economically in a depression. We have tens of millions of people out of work. The macro data is disgusting, and yeah. the market has held up due to efforts by the central banks. What do you say to people that come to you guys and they're like, "Is like this the fucking normal, or you know, should we expect this going into the future?" Or, or I mean, do you say just ignore it and and focus on the day's tape, or do you? I mean, what what do you even tell somebody? I wouldn't even know what the hell to tell somebody. I mean, part of it is we say, we don't know, <laughs> you know, we don't know what's going to happen. This, this is like, it's like all bets are off in this, in this environment. It's, it's fucking madness. Um, but yeah, we do tell them, Hey, our, our expertise is not macroeconomic predictions and, you know, long-term time horizon. Like that's, that's not what we do. You know, we're here to follow the institutional players, identify what they're doing and, and make money off of that. You know, that's, that's what we do. And in the time frame, if you, and, and you can still, you can still do that and do that successfully. So, um, but we certainly aren't here making predictions on what's going to happen because I mean, dude, who, who the fuck knows what's going to happen with all this, you know, especially leading up. I don't know. Do you think any of this, this policy, the central bank policy is going to change around um, the election? Like if Trump doesn't win, do you think that this, that this changes or is this, do you think this is well, something? I think tax, I think fiscal policy will change. I don't know if monetary policy will change. I mean, Biden right. was just out moments ago saying he's going to raise the corporate tax rate. I mean, you, you want to see things come 
screeching to a halt. I, I don't even know. I don't even know because at the end of the day, Charlie, it's like, does tax revenue even matter anymore? Right. I mean, does it? Yeah. Do, how, yeah. How, how do we balance tax revenue with money coming off the printing press? Which one do we yeah. need more? I mean, obviously, we need the tax revenue more because, as Peter Schiff would always say, the government doesn't have any money. The government's fucking broke. So it either needs right. to collect it from its citizens or – it needs to print it. And I, you know, look, I hate high taxes. I think they stifle economic activity. I think it's money that people would otherwise be de deploying elsewhere on their own that the government then turns around and tries to reallocate. And the government is a terribly uh, inefficient allocator of capital. So if a Democrat wins, who knows what the Fed winds up doing? I think we, we could wind up drifting towards MMT. If uh, I mean we're already there, but really as a as a policy like universal basic income, and I think that puts us yeah. in a, an exceptionally vulnerable position. Not only in the sense that we could turn our currency into fucking Swiss cheese, but also I think it puts us in an extraordinarily vulnerable position to the other major superpowers in the world. Because if we start to do that, and we don't have the rest of the world on board. I think that opens a door for Russia, for China, for some of these other countries that have been hoarding gold to say, wait a second, we're not playing the central bank game anymore. We want to batten down the hatches. We want to raise interest rates. We want to peg the currency. And then we have what you would say in Spanish is el fucking grande problemo. Uh, so that, that's my analysis of the situation. I think that's because oh, I'm man. drinking a Dos Equis. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is why in my, I remember in my econ 101 class, um, she, our, our professor was up there just making sort of uh, declaring sort of very definitive cause and effect relationships. Right. But for me, it just never, it never made sense. I never had any confidence, I guess, in my personal capacity to predict any sort of long-term economic trends because it just seems like such an immensely complicated system that is so far outside of the human brain's capacity to like project, to, to understand all of the variables and project, not to mention that it is always based on this, at least in the very beginning econ classes I was in before I said, fuck this and, and switched my major. Um, it was always based on the assumption that people are rational actors, which obviously they, they are not. Um, but that's why I feel like people who, I don't know, you got to have just an incredible uh, degree of curiosity or patience, or I suppose self-confidence to to be in the game of predicting what's going to happen with this on this time frame, um, I it's it's way over my head to be honest. I have no idea. That's one of the reasons that when I talk macro, a lot of other Austrian guys will say, "Oh, this shit's going to fall apart tomorrow." And I always say, "I don't really know when it's going to fall apart. All I know is that to me, it appears to be a mathematical uh, certainty that it will fall apart at some point." The issue is not so much wrapping our heads around how the macro economy works, I don't think, like you just said. I think the big unknown is this psychological element. It's the people's confidence in the central banks, and it's the global central bank's prisoner's dilemma with one another. How long is everybody willing to stay on the same page? 
and adopt the same style of monetary policy? Because if you got the six major central banks all participating in the same fuck fest with fiat and they all say it's okay, then that's going to buy you some time. If one of them defects, then you have a different system. Mm -hmm. But then you also, in addition to that, as that bedrock kind of moves underneath everything, you have the people like me and you, and not just us, because we're somewhat in the know, but the, you know, my friend down the street who's a welder, and my buddy that's a plumber, and my buddy that's an electrician who who don't know that much about central banking, they don't care to know that much about central banking, but their buy-in to some degree from a confidence standpoint is also required. Um, right. When is that lost? What are they? What do you feel like their perception of what's going on is right now? What What, what do you think their read on their psychology is? If I you're think, having these conversations with them and all. Well, you know what? I mean, I hang out at a local bar around here, and it's a wonderful working class bar with v- minimum participants interested in finance. So mm-hmm. when we talk finance, if ever, we brush with very broad strokes. And the sense that I get from these people who I really like, they're really the salt of the earth style people, is that they understand that money is coming from somewhere. They understand that stimulus is happening. They understand that the government can provide money seemingly somehow, but they don't really know where that money is coming from. They don't understand that we're printing it. They don't understand, you know, how what the relationship between the central bank and the government is. A lot of them think that the government has five trillion dollars that they're just selling, uh, shelling out to the public to do stimulus with. They don't understand what the inflationary cost of printing that money is. Um, right. And I think that when I talk to these people about things like why I own gold and silver, because people at my bar that you know. Hey, I heard you got a podcast. I heard you do finance. What do you think about this, this, and this? You know, and I try to right. never, ever, ever give advice ever. Um, right. But every Smart. once in a while, right? Every once in a while, I'll talk about why I own gold and silver, and it seems to make a lot of sense to these people. You know, they say, "Oh right. yeah, yeah, I get it." You know, we just something we can't print more of. It's like, yeah. Right. <laughs> do you? I mean, do you feel like they're level of confidence do you feel like they have a high level of confidence in the system right now like do they feel any sense of what we're talking about of that it's just like we're we're, we're you know drifting into some sort of like strange simulation where nothing makes sense anymore or are they they're just sort of like oh, all right i hear the stock market's up like things I are, think, yeah and that's pretty much it i think a good majority of them equate the stock market to the economy and it doesn't right. it doesn't matter. We could be in a serious hyperinflationary spike and if the market in the Dow went to 40,000 uh I don't think it would matter to them because they don't really, you know, until the purchasing power of the dollar declining shows up in the products that they buy every day, till a gallon of milk, you know, goes from 439 to 1249 overnight. Um, I'm not sure that they'll get it, but maybe that's it. I mean, maybe, maybe it's inflation showing up in the goods and services that we buy 
that uh, yeah. I was listening to a, a stand-up comic this morning. Came on my Spotify, and he was talking about. It was recorded, I think, in early 2020. The dude's name is Lavelle Crawford. He's funny as shit too. But he was talking about Trump versus Obama. And one of the points that he made was he says, he's like, man, he's like, you know, I know Trump's crazy, but I don't really fuck with him because, you know, our adversaries know he's crazy. So they leave him alone. There have been no terrorist attacks. And then he says, he said, man, he said, price of oil is $1.49 a gallon. Now it was four thirty nine when Obama was in office. Now. Yep. A lot of things have changed to for the price of the commodity to adjust, but what did I gather from that? I gathered that people still want low prices. It's a totally. it, that's what they look at. The consumer isn't in this Keynesian fucking echo chamber. The consumer knows that if they can get the same loaf of bread for ninety nine cents instead of a dollar ninety nine, that's a win for them. Just like if taxes come down, that's a win for them. And there's no model and no fucking Paul Krugman book and no fucking this, that, and the other thing that's gonna convince them otherwise. Because economics yeah. is very basic, right, Charlie? It should be. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think this is something this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it relates. Like one of the things that we're redoing right now, that we've been putting a lot of time into is rebuilding the platform that is um, the ecosystem for our for our products for our subscription product, right? So it's like it kind of looks like Slack. It's a chat environment, but it's got data feeds in there and education and stuff like that. And we we're rebuilding it. And when you go through the process of building software and testing it with users, you realize like how much effort goes into simplifying and streamlining the experience of of um, navigating an interface and the shit that we take for granted, I mean, to take it to the extreme of, of you know, even with hardware, like we're using an Apple product um, that we take for granted. It's just like assume like, oh yeah, of course, like to open it, you're going to swipe to the right. And how much of this stuff is not intuitive? How much of this stuff you have to, you know, basically engineer from scratch and come up with but when you realize, we did this fascinating thing where we had like 10, you know, potential users come on and test it out in front of us. We're watching their screens and we're watching their their mouse move around and click on the interface and stuff and kind of watching them struggle to, to, to try to do certain things in a test environment. And you realize like things that you, when you've been immersed in something for so long that you think are, are natural conclusions that are, that are just obvious the average person is coming in, think about how much shit they have occupying their mind and their brain space, right? Like how much, how many things are craving, are competing for their attention? You know, how many other stressors do they have in their life with kids, their job, obviously what's going on right now with the amount of social unrest that's happening and, and, and COVID on top of that, like people aren't sitting around thinking about macroeconomic theory, right? <laughs> They're just like, how much is, how much because they don't have time and that's not that's that's I'm, I'm not doing it either like that's not not that's just human nature that's that's the reality of the situation and to the degree that you know someone you want to call trump a, a, a genius like he gets that man it's a pretty simple correlation and i think he knows you know keep the keep the market up as much as you can keep the price of those goods down and a, you know a huge portion of population is gonna be like yeah this guy's helping me out right now so what do i got to lose 
Yeah, move, you know, get the jobs back to the U.S. by any means possible. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting you use that analog to developing the software. I have a technical writing minor. And as part of my... Oh, you do? Holy shit. You're sick in the head, man. Yeah, as part of my technical (laughs) writing uh, studies, we wrote, you know, a number of instruction manuals and technical documents and oh my god to to do that why would you do that to yourself well i wanted so hard because my major was english and i thought that was very nebulous and so i figured if i could get this minor which was business and technical writing and i i had already fulfilled part of the requirements for us all right be a nice little you know feather in my cap uh to go along with my 2.1 gpa or whatever i graduated college with (laughs) But while we were doing that, it was all about shortening the steps and making things as simple as possible. Exactly what right. you're, exactly what you're saying. So you wouldn't right. write step one, open the box to your new IKEA television stand and remove all the parts and get the tools laid out and get the parts on one side of the room and make sure the drill is charged and do this and that and the other. It would just start with, you know, open one end of the box. Step one, right? Because that's clear, concise. That's what people need. And really, as I was saying before, the economy is not the complex instrument that the central banks and PhD economists want us to think that it is. I, I I really don't think that. I always use the analogy of if the economy was a single story house, Charlie, and that's the basics, the rules of supply and demand and price discovery and market participants and uh, capital investment, what all we've done since the 70s, since the 80s, since we've come off the gold standard is just put one addition after another onto the house. Until now, the original house is this tiny little thing barely holding on to the ground. And you have all these disgusting additions making this big lopsided fucking monstrosity. At the end of the day, it's very simple. It's supply and demand. It's price discovery. I mean, to complicate it, the, the reason it's so complicated, the reason that the policy that we use now is so complicated is because we want to tailor the economy to do what we want it to do. We want to fuck with it to get it so that the market always goes up and so that maximum um, employment occurs and that we can rig interest rates. So we're rigging employment, we're rigging the interest rate, and we're rigging the stock market. And what the... What's left after that, it looks nothing like what an actual economy should look like. Right. And why is yeah. that, Charlie? So that fucking people can get reelected. For sure. 100%. It's easier for them to get reelected when everybody is under the impression that things are great, even if they aren't. Right. Yeah. Just keep the, keep a, keep the public distracted by the the shiny object of, you know, money coming into their pockets and you're, you can get away with murder. So when's the last time you did mushrooms? (laughs) Good segue. Um, the last time I did mushrooms in a, in a, in a macro dose, you mean larger dose, um, would, would be 
months, a bit ago, actually. It's been, I haven't done any during COVID or anything like that. I mean, it was last year. It was 2019, for sure. Did you find yeah, out you? anything that I need to know? <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of answers I'm still looking for. And I'm wondering if yeah. somebody else has bumped into any of them. You know what's funny? I was talking about this the other day with somebody. Um, I was on a bike ride around here because that's what people do in the Bay Area. They go on hikes and bike rides. That's like how you socialize. Like some like they, cycling. Up and the they hill. shit on the streets. And that too. They shit on the streets. And they steal bikes. Someone stole my bike out of my apartment building today, which sucked. Today? Um, yeah, this morning. I woke up and this bike was gone. It's all right. I mean, it wasn't like a nice road bike. It was like a commuter bike, but it still sucks. Um, but anyways, um, and I was talking to him about, he was, he was asking about psychedelics and, you know, just sort of other transcendent experiences. And he was like, what do you, what do you feel like you get out of them most of the time? And there are certainly times where I feel like I get, you know, some sort of wisdom, you know, that, that, that wasn't there. Some, uh, definitely a perspective on myself that, that maybe I didn't have access to before, but I feel like more often than not, it's like a reaffirmation. It's a relearning of something that I already know to be true. Right. Do you feel like that that's something that you experience with psychedelics? It's like, you know, there's fundamental truths that you kind of know about yourself, you know about the world, and you just, you drift away from them. You, for whatever reason, you forget them. And then they just kind of remind you, they, they bring you back to, to, to those realizations or to those understandings. Yeah, that in... Um, marijuana, I think, will remind you of the things that you have been able to convince yourself uh, not to think about. Yes, 100%. You know, um, people always say, oh, marijuana makes you paranoid. It really doesn't. It just fucking enlightens you to the truth of the matter. It removes your blinders a little bit and it tells you kind of how things really are. And, you know, if you have a character flaw that you've been able to ignore, but you know it's a problem, I don't know. Sometimes if you if you have some marijuana or you eat a mushroom, you're reminded of that. And right. I think to some degree that's very healthy. I think it's really healthy too. I think, although I, I think the flip side of that, there has been with microdosing, um, I've had a couple conversations with people who have gotten into it. And they've said, you know, it really caused upticks in their anxiety. And they and they were saying, you know, hey, I realized, like, I started having all these thoughts about, like, my relationship with my, uh, you know, with my mom, which has been a really complicated thing for me, you know, for for a long time, or, or something, you know, trauma that they, they they experienced as a kid that, you know, their normal everyday working brain is compartmentalized because it doesn't really serve them to be productive and to you know do what they need to do on a day-to-day basis but these substances can can bring that material up you know it's kind of your brain's way of saying like dude you need to look at this shit (laughs) yeah this is you know this is important but sometimes when people who are microdosing and they're like well i'm a developer and you know i want to get into a flow state so i can crank out more code and then all of a sudden they're like why am i I'm like thinking about, you know, this, this kind of trauma or this, you know, this experience with these, these relationship dynamics and stuff. Um, and it's been, it's been surprising for them, you know? So I feel like some of the, the conversations around psychedelics are, um, are not, they don't, um, it's kind of like they, they go too far to one extreme or the other. It's either like, Oh my God, take these things. It's going to 
change your way you see the world and your perspective and you know it could make you have a billion dollar idea while you're whatever guzzling mushrooms and thinking about things or it's like no 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 don't take a mushroom don't eat mushrooms it's gonna um you know take you to some horrible trip and you're gonna be just in hell for eight hours um but the truth is i think it's it's often you know somewhere closer in the middle and especially with microdosing there's there's people who are having some some challenging experiences that i feel like that's not it's not necessarily being discussed enough um in the public so i don't know i guess that's my my PSA. If you're gonna if you're gonna do it, that, make sure you. Would. I would bet that microdosing is quite healthy, uh, because I've never done it. I've never microdosed. I've mm-hmm. macrodosed before, and um, my experience with that is shit is gonna go either horribly wrong or fucking great, <laughs> and nowhere in between, you know. And it doesn't really. It just kind of depends on when this shit hits you and what's going on around you and what kind of mood you're in. Because once you set off in one direction, you're not fucking coming back. Um, you know, and it's the strangest shit, too. I mean, you could just be sitting somewhere and something kicks in and somebody sneezes and it, you know, next to you and it puts you off. And, and then that's it. And you're fucked for like six hours, you know, or, uh, or just the opposite, you know, you could be feeling very relaxed and embracing it. And, but I think on some of my more productive experiences, I have, you know, I've taken a couple of things that I've really, I've taken personal inventory in a way that I think has really helped me. And I'll give you a good for instance. I know I'm talking a lot this podcast. We're having a you know pretty involved conversation back and forth and back and forth. And I'm probably talking more with you than I would with somebody else that I was interviewing. Just because that's how the mm-hmm. conversation's been going. Right. But years ago, I talked way too much. I would monopolize every conversation I was in. And I wasn't really even monopolizing it because what I had to say probably wasn't that important. I was just babbling. And (laughs) I came to the realization one of these times that if I don't stop interrupting fucking people and I don't realize that what I have to say is not the most important thing in the room and the most important thing that this person's ever heard, then I am never going to be able to fucking communicate with anybody. And so... For like ten, was this pre? Was this pre podcast or was yeah, this yeah, yeah? That's why I'm bringing it up. Right. This was like ten yeah. years ago, and right. since then I have made a concerted, an actual effort when I go out and I speak to people, especially if it's somebody I'm really trying to have a conversation with. If I'm on a date, or if I'm talking to somebody that I admire in the industry, or I'm talking to my boss, or I'm talking to my parents to allow for them to speak and really to listen. For me, I don't know if it's because I got fucking ADD or whatever. It's difficult for me to listen. So mm-hmm. I have to focus on listening. And um, I'm not sure that the podcast would go the way that it has gone over the last two years if I hadn't done that. Dude, that's like a that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that people – that sounds subtle. It doesn't sound like that. It's that. That's not such like an, an enormous epiphany, but it is a. It's kind of a paradigm shift of what you're talking about of evaluating yourself and being like, I should switch to listening more rather than talking more, right? But that sort of like binary 
change when you talk about like the compass effect of what that effect that has when you extend it over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, like imagine how many more, even putting the podcast aside, which is clearly like, you know, that's an incredible correlation, but just imagine how many, like how much deeper your relationships are, right? How much more you've learned from people who you're sitting at, you know, at the bar talking to that otherwise you might not have been listening to before. Like that's, that's a life changing, you know, experience, but it's not, you know, oh wow, now I understand the nature of the universe. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's a perfect example of the kind of shit that people that people realize when they come to it. Because that having the conversations like that, that's one of those patterns that people get in and they don't know how to get out of it and they don't know that they're in it. And yes. you know, when you talk about pattern behavior, you talk about things like uh, alcoholism and gambling and all these, you know, things that can have a negative impact on your life interrupting people and talking over them and talking too much and not listening and really having that ego and thinking, Oh, you know, I'm the most important person in the room. That's very similar. And there are, you know, this is why people go to therapy to break patterns because they can't do it on their own. They get stuck in their own feedback loop and they can't step out of it. So therapy, people go and they talk to a therapist who tries to, slowly unwind the ball of string in their head by giving them, offering them perspective, waiting for them to finally listen and embrace that perspective. Whereas psychedelics just get neurons firing in your brain immediately that that were not firing prior. That kind of, you know, like, uh, like the Super Mario warp tunnel. You get in, you leave one <laughs> world and you just come into another one. And all of a sudden you're right. like, fuck, I didn't even know this part of my brain existed. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is what a lot of the research is showing right now. And my personal experience, you know, corroborates that is that um, it's breaking patterns is, is one of the, the most powerful things that, that they facilitate. <clears throat> and yeah, it's just all about neuroplasticity. And you were talking about, you know, whether or not like microdosing is healthy or not. I mean, the truth is they don't know. They don't, we don't have enough data for it. Like they, they just definitively don't know. There's some concern there's obviously populations of people that shouldn't microdose if you have underlying mental health conditions, if you're especially with bipolar, schizophrenic, um, if you are taking certain medications that don't play nice with psychedelics. Um, but you know, there is an other there is potential concern around heart risk um, that is like still being researched. They don't have definitive um, you know conclusions on or anything there, but it has to do with the serotonin receptors that are activated by um, by psychedelics, which actually I didn't realize this before I started learning more about psychedelics. There are serotonin receptors on your heart, which is kind of crazy. Um, so, but anyways, in terms of, I do know a number of people who would never say this publicly, but they are, um, neuropsychopharmacologists, they're psychiatrists, they're deeply, uh, educated about the nature of the brain psychopharmacology and, and what we know about psychedelics and they themselves microdose and they, you know, do it. Um, they they believe that it could could be you know healthy on a long term basis in part because of the behavioral change that it facilitates. Right? Like if I've noticed when I when I do it when I have stretches where where I microdose, I'm just naturally more likely to to eat cleaner. Right? I'm naturally more likely to look at my relationships and identify things that are causing me harm, basically like, you know, toxic behaviors that I might be engaging in. Um, I naturally drink less alcohol. I don't really, I don't have a problem with alcohol. It's never been an issue with me, but I just like, 
I don't need, I don't want it as much, you know? Um, so if I was betting, I would say microdosing is probably leads to healthier, to, to better health outcomes and, and is healthier. But again, you know, for everybody out there, don't, don't take my word for it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're not advocating that people go out and do drugs. Right. Correct. So Absolutely. that's my official yeah. stance. My unofficial stance is how much more fucked up can the world get anyways? I mean, what the hell do you have to lose at this point? Because if fucking we're in the midst of a global pandemic, I mean, all mm-hmm. hell is breaking loose. I feel like we need this shit now more than ever. One of the big problems that's causing a lot of this social unrest is I was talking to Mark DeFont about this on my last podcast is people's simple inability to break out of their own shell and be able to examine things objectively without being frightened by ideas that they don't agree with. I agree 100%. And I think that, I mean, I think there's a shitload of trauma that is going to come out of this this last year um, that people are going to need an expedited way to heal from. You know, I mean, this 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 has, the last year has rocked some people's lives to the core. And unfortunately, the best treatment methods that they have for trauma right now, you know, even if you have a really good therapist, it's hard to find a really good therapist. And if they are trained in how to help someone, you know, unwind trauma, it, t- it takes a long time, you know? And I think the promise of, of psychedelics and psychedelic medicine is that it can, it can potentially expedite that, that process. It doesn't mean that it's just, you take a pill and it goes away. It's, it's not that simple, but it can be on a much shorter time frame and, and, you know, much, much faster. And then I think for the general population, if you take sort of trauma out of it, like just the things that we're confronted with now on a frequent basis, you know, pandemic, like the level of unrest that we're seeing, you know, like natural disasters that are um, <laughs> that are just like way more common and intense than, than they used to be. I feel like we, the, the average human being now has demands on them that they need to be more responsive. They need to be able to adapt way more quickly. They need to be able to like change their way of, of seeing the world and what is potentially going to be coming down the pike to them on a daily basis. You need to be able to do that rapidly. And I think that is another reason why psychedelics are going to have utility, you know, for a long time to come because like the world is just becoming way more demanding on us and they can help us sort of consistently, acclimate to those you know to those demands i think the first trick is realizing just that and again to tap into what i was talking to mark defont about a couple of days ago was this idea of how different our society is now that we're born into versus what our biology and our genetics as a function of evolutionary psychology tells us that our day-to-day should look like yeah and there was already a huge delta there, right? It was already we're born, we're basically aliens in our own world in that sense. Right. But then when you throw right. when you throw the pandemic and the social unrest into it, it it raises that level of just uh, white noise much higher from the get go, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. if we were fucked six months ago, we're totally fucked now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I it's I actually. I don't know. Do you feel like the people in your personal network have been handling it well? I feel like for me, we've seen a, like a lower, the average level of stress has gone up and the average level of, you know, it like instances of depression have, have gone up, but it's not, 
I haven't seen a lot of people having like complete breakdowns, complete freakouts, and well, I'm a little bit surprised. What the fuck have you been watching, Charlie? If you haven't seen people <laughs> having complete breakdowns, no, 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 no. I mean, like in my personal, um, I guess in my personal network, amongst right. amongst my friends and stuff like that. Um, I haven't had a lot of people saying, "Yeah, I just, I just can't fucking do this anymore. I'm, I'm losing my shit. I can't. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm done. Like, kind of a, kind of a complete psychological breakdown. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of surprised." honestly that we don't see more of that maybe that's a testament to to what people can handle um do you have you have you seen that a lot like have you experienced well, this in my network really people are handling it okay for the yeah. most part which is crazy you know, to think about like that's wild yeah it's i think it's a function of being healthy or somewhat healthy mentally you know if i if i was dealing with this 10 years ago, I'd be dealing with it a hell of a lot differently than I am now. I would be under severe, yeah. severe stress on the daily. Yeah. I mean, I've had yeah. the benefits of growing up and maturing. I've had the benefits of going to therapy and learning a lot of interesting things that have helped me out. I've had the benefits of a lot of self-reflection. I've had the benefits of putting mushrooms on top of a Reese's peanut butter cup and eating it in the woods. Uh, <laughs> I've had a couple of benefits that I think have kind of helped. Um, And, you know, my parents are doing well. They've made significant lifestyle changes like many people have. And they're both, I think, very healthy, uh, intelligent people to begin with. They have a great relationship with each other. They have we have a great relationship as a family. Um, But I know that's not the case. And, you know, the one of my very good friends who I work with, I mean, he's handled it exceptionally well. He's picked up and moved a couple of times with his family uh, to uh, to get out of the city. And, uh, you know, we've managed to be productive in the interim. And so really the people in my immediate circle have done a great job. But, I mean, we're, we're all semi-healthy people with a good network around us. It's... Uh, yeah. You know, it's everybody else that I I worry about. And I worry going into November, dude. Because no matter who wins this election, there's going to be a group of fucking righteously pissed off people. Agreed. Yeah, I'm, uh, I totally agree with that. And depending on whether there's still this sort of pent-up level of energy with people having to still continue with shelter in place and God knows where the economy is going to be at and, you know, people, joblessness levels being way higher... Yeah, shit could get real serious um, when November comes around, depending, regardless of who wins. So, kind of bracing for that. But again, it's like, what do you, what do you do? <laughs> like, how do you prepare for that? You know, I mean, lock your doors, I suppose. <laughs> what else? Um, what else are you supposed to do? Get the mushrooms ready, I suppose. Be ready for uh, to bend your mind a little bit. You have to look for answers to questions that are big enough to usurp all of it, right? Hmm. You have to, all of these problems and anxieties that we're talking about exist on a plane, P-L-A-N-E, together. And you need to come up with a solution that just kind of scoops that whole plane of existence and deals with it at once, that, that usurps that entire you know you need to you need to get on some different ideological shit you need to really 
look to make changes in, in your firmware, not just in your random access memory. If you want a dorky computer term, right? Your firmware right. is like your hardwired shit between your brain and, you know, your short-term memory. And most people deal with issues by changing their short-term memory. They go out, they have a drink, they put it aside, they blow off steam, they go to the gym, they do this, they do that. And I think the solution for society and for definitely for the country is to look for some deep ideological common ground with our fellow man and try to uh, start there and then build off of that very slowly and very carefully. But I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's, if it's patriotism, if it's, uh, you know, if we go back to the constitution and we, and we start there and we look back at what, I don't know if it's a religious thing. I don't know if we all need to fucking embrace Buddhism. I don't know if we all need to smoke a joint in the woods together. I I don't know, man. I really don't. What do you think? Maybe. I think that's incredibly well said. I agree. I think that's something that I, when I feel periods of any sort of um, kind of relief from the the stress of everything that's going on the day to day, it is because I'm sort of moving up to a different plane, um, more of a sort of, and I guess for me it becomes more, um, I don't know if you would call it spiritual, but um, philosophical, I suppose. Maybe, maybe it's spiritual. Yeah. Um, and it's just thinking about things on a much larger time horizon. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I read science fiction, to be honest. Like there are, it, it helps me, I feel like, think about things on a scale where, because that's one, one of the central, you know, components of most science fiction is it's operating on, on, a, on a scale that's, that's just way beyond what's, you know, what's on planet Earth, right? And so, you know, when you, when when you think about characters in, interacting in in a context that is so massive, it does remind me of kind of just how small and essentially, I don't know if you want to call it meaningless, but like at the end of the day, everything, all the little things that I go through on a daily basis that that might frustrate me or that I might experience, like how much do they really matter in the grand scheme of things? Not not that much, you know. And there's, I think that there's a very fine line there between nihilism and um and uh you know just sort of letting go and and um i guess it's sort of like secular buddhism in in my perspective um and i think i i flirt with that a little bit and try not to fall into the the state of nihilism because that's just not a place i want to be in but um i completely agree with you and i think for me um i don't want to just sit here and preach psychedelics, psychedelics, psychedelics. But they, my experiences with those substances have really helped me and conversations I've had, I would actually say it's not even so much the experiences themselves. It's conversations I've had with other people who've had a number of psychedelic experiences and the perspective, there's just sort of like a similar wavelength that you can get on where you can have conversations about topics, kind of like what we're talking about right now, where, you know, there's something bigger out there. You know, there's something bigger out there, and both of you are sitting there being like, "Yeah, okay." Like we've, there's a recognition, and like I'm, I'm down to go there. I'm down to talk about these things. I'm down to to delve into these perspectives. Um, and I feel like I learn so much from those conversations. And I guess the common denominator for for some of those has been 
hey, you know, we've, we've both had psychedelic experiences that have um, helped to see things from, you know, different from different perspectives. So, um, yeah, but I think that's that's very well said. You got to find some way to transcend, you know, the the nitty gritty and, and the bullshit that you can get mired in, because otherwise you're just blocking and tackling in a world that is going to continually uh, frustrate and, and torture. Yeah. You. And, and one of the most important things that you can do is not worry about things that you can't change and people go to therapy just to learn that one thing if you take 10 years and you go to therapy and that's the only thing you take from it it's an enormous gain but that I think when you talk about kind of zooming out and you talk about the idea of realizing how insignificant we are the idea of not worrying about what you can't change what like what does that mean that sounds like one of those sayings that you fucking hear from people so don't worry about the things that you can't change you know the guy that gives you advice you just want to punch him in the face immediately like yeah i'll show you know fuck you i'll show you what i can change your face you know like but but when you really when you think about that like you think about that don't worry about what you can't change Right? That, that takes like 98% of the things that you probably worry about off yeah. your plate. Yeah, and to some degree, and this is why I've come back around on religion a little bit. There's a lot of things about religion I don't like, but there are some things that I like. And one of the positives is the idea of faith. Because the idea of faith allows for you to surrender not only to the things that you can't change here in this world, but the things that you can't change in a much broader spiritual realm, whatever the fuck that is, whether it's a computer simulation or whether it's a, you know, a guy playing us like puppets upstairs. Uh, at some point, there has to be something to kind of just, you know, you just have to lay down your arms to some degree. Yes. And it's such a healthy thing to do when you do that because it it really it helps with it helps to remind you to be mindful and it helps to remind you that life isn't what I fucking make in my trading account tomorrow and life isn't what I do next month whether I go out on a date and life isn't what kind of house I'm living in in five years and life isn't whether or not I'm going to this college. Life is me talking to Charlie Bathgate right now. Life is happening right now. It's this conversation we're having right fucking now. Yeah, yeah, well said. I mean, I had a conversation with uh, a guy who's a mentor of mine. He was, he was a coach for a while, but I, I definitely consider him um, to be someone who is just really wise and experienced and um he also happens to be a psychiatrist who's very well informed about psychedelics and i was actually talking to him about um i went to burning man this year and i for a while i was going to i didn't have i didn't have getting of course to do you it. did <laughs> yeah yeah duh. um and for a while i was going to volunteer at there's a tent there that's called the zendo project and it's a place that if someone if you have people who are uh, having like a really challenging psychedelic experience, which happens to people at Burning Man in that environment, you can take them there and there are trained volunteers who can help them help kind of 
guide them or you know be present for them and help kind of de-escalate the the severity of the situation and and help them kind of get through it right because you it's it's harm reduction you can you can really avoid some some serious um harm being done if, if you can intervene like that and i was talking to him and i was like you know, there's all sorts of things that you that you can learn that are sort of practical interventions around uh, having people focus on their breath and saying certain things to them and, you know, holding their hand if, they're, if that's something they've opted into, you know, to, in a certain way. Like there's practical interventions you can do. But I was talking to him about, well, what do you do if this person's mind is basically trans is, is fixed on the idea that everything is not going to be OK, right? And that if, if that is the message that is just getting pounded through their head over and over and over, you know, that things are not going to be okay. Like, what do you tell that? What do you say to somebody in any circumstance, whether they're having a psychedelic trip at Burning Man or just if that's their daily, their daily life? Like, if, if that is where they're fixed in, what do, you, what do you do with that? And he was like, well, that's where it gets really interesting. And he, he said essentially exactly what you just said. It's about faith, right? Um, that for most people, the way that they can get out of that place is their faith and whether that's faith, you know, capital F in, in a religious sense, um, or whether that's faith in some sort of, um, you know, sort of agnostic or, you know, even, uh, you know, some, some, some level of sort of connection with, with nature and, and, uh, or even there, you know, there are people who look at it from the sense of, from, from a physics perspective, you know, that we are all living in sort of an interconnected, um, and interconnected capacities, like it is that sense of faith that is really your door out of a place of uh, sort of imprisoned trauma, where your where your brain is telling you at every moment that um, that things are not going to be okay. And that's crazy that you just articulated that. I mean, this is a guy who's um, spent his life thinking about problems like this <laughs> and you're just spitballing here and you, you, you hit the nail on the head. So, um, that's impressive. But I think that that's, that's exactly right. I think for in this time right now, um, I know for me, like being able to, to think on kind of that, like a, a higher level, that's been the way that, that it's helped me get through some of the more, you know, stressful patches through all this. So, um, yeah. Makes sense. You talk about the little things that you can do, and there's some great stuff if you want to dabble into this shit. There's some great stuff. You just got to read books and magazines about mindfulness. And mindfulness is this thing that kind of exists. It's a it's an amalgam of not worrying about the things that you can't control and having something to fall back on and surrendering. It's kind of all these things at once because when you're being mindful of what's happening now you don't really have you don't have the space to worry about whether or not you're going to be able to make your mortgage payment in nine months or not you're just focused on what you're doing and right. so many interesting things happen physically when you start to adopt that one of my favorites that I read about a while ago is just being mindful when you eat your food not eating yep. while you're doing something else, not eating while you're working, not eating while you're watching TV, not eating while you're, you know, in a rush. You sit and you eat and you chew your food. And I mean, it sounds so stupid, right? Most people, they eat and they swallow their food whole. They don't even chew it. You sit there, you make a point to chew 25 times and you, you actually start to taste your food and your body 
your you know your whole body comes out of your fight or flight and starts to like starts to get into this passive state where like it's that's what you're focused on and your automotile systems in your body which are like your intestines and all the things that work without you having to tell them to work they start to function better in a situation like that whereas if you're doing a bunch of work and you're trying to get a report done and you're shoving a candy bar down your throat at the same time your body right. still thinks you're working your body doesn't think you you're eating um and so it sends different signals and it becomes difficult to digest your food and that's why that combined with the fact that most food is poison from a organic chemistry standpoint is why this ibs thing has popped up right Everybody said, I got an irritable bowel syndrome, but you're walking around eating poison and eating doing trash, it. Yeah. super stressed out all, <laughs> and just shoving it down your gullet. Like, at, yeah, yeah, that's not ideal. Anybody who's who's interested in this stuff should read a, anything written by John Kabat-Zinn. Have you ever read his stuff? No. Chris? Okay. So he's, uh, he is the man. He's actually doing something that I think is really cool. He's been doing a uh, free guided meditation during COVID, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he was for a while, um, for, for an hour, every single day. It, it was at, I think a noon, my time Pacific 11, my time. Um, but it's really crazy. You, you've got people from around the world. You know, it's like 3000 people that can join the zoom live. Um, and everybody else watches a recording and, um, and the, the, the impact that it's had on, on people, he, he does like Q and A's at the end. And, uh, and people sometimes will just like weep talking to him about asking these questions and talking about the impact that 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 slowing down and engaging with their environment in a more mindful way and, and going through his guided meditations has had on their ability to navigate the stressful circumstances that they're in. It's incredible. Um, and he's got a couple books. One of them is called um, Full Catastrophe Living, which is kind of like a terrifying uh, title, but um, is an incredible book on, on mindfulness. Um, so he's, if anybody wants into this, he's, he's, he's a great place to start. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. There's times, you know, even for me who I like, I, I focus on this stuff all the time and I meditate every day and all this, it's, it's a big part of my life. I'll be sitting there and I'm eating and I'm like, I'm not eating, I'm not eating right now. I'm, I'm reading Twitter. Like right. I'm not, I'm, phys I'm physically eating, but my mind is not at all paying attention to, to my food. Um, so yeah, so you just take those moments. You're like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to eat. I'm not going to do 10 different things at once. I'm going to actually think about the food. I'm going to taste the food. It gives you such a deeper level of gratitude for the fact that you're eating, yep. you're enjoying what you're eating, that you actually have food to eat. I mean, these like simple things that sound sort of like trite almost, if you well, you, if you you don't engage even, in it every day. You don't even realize that that's a thing sometimes. Like what meditation is and what focusing on your eating is, is you slowing yourself down and allowing your body to kick out of overdrive. But most people are stuck in this mode that they don't even know that they're in because they've been living it for so long or because – they can't put aside the demands of their environment that they don't they don't even like the first step is realizing that things can change and for me that was the right. hardest thing because i would just be like yeah, yeah i'm fucking relaxed i'm fine you know i just slept i just slept seven <laughs> hours and then i ran 10 you know 10 miles today like 
I, I did my exercise to burn off my stress and I slept, you know, meanwhile, I'm, I'm drenched in sweat while I'm sleeping and, uh, you know, I'm not breathing while I'm running and I, and I come back and I think I've calmed down, but I'm 10 times worse than I was before I left. So that realization for people that there is a way to slow yourself down, to calm yourself, to put the phone on do not disturb, even leave the phone out of the room for a couple of hours. It can be done. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, people you don't do it. people don't realize they think they got to look at Twitter every 20 seconds or they got to see if somebody called or they got to have alerts on. Just put your phone on do not disturb for a day. It'll be there yeah. when you're ready to go to it and all of the notifications will be up of the things that you missed. But in the, <laughs> right. in the interim, it's not in the background going bang, 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 you know, reminding yeah. you that there's this thing beckoning for your attention. And, and it also it just makes you realize that you have a choice about how you experience your world and your environment that right. it doesn't have. I mean, there's days, we all have days like this where it's just, you feel like it's nonstop. Like you're getting like artillery, you know, fire from every direction and, and you kind of get to the end of the day and you're like, oh, what the fuck just happened? Like, that was, you know, what the, what I just lived, that was insane. But some people live every single day like that. And obviously everyone's circumstances are, are different. You can't, you know, make, make generalizations, but, um, it does, when you start having like small moments where you slow down, you realize like, Oh shit, I can choose how I experience my, you know, my world, my reality. I can choose how I navigate this. And once you feel that sense of self agency of when I change what I do, it has a positive effect on me. Therefore I want to do that more. Then you've got this cause and effect relationship in your brain where you're like, I'm in, I'm actually more in control of my circumstances and my life and the way I feel than I thought I was. And that, I mean, Lucci and I talk about this all the time. I mean, that bleeds into the concept of, you know, attachment, right? Of these things that we think we have to have in order to be happy. Um, and really how minimal, how little we actually need in order to be happy, right? How much more of our happiness is determined by the way that we are consciously navigating our circumstances, our environment versus, you know, the material, uh, resources or whatever that we've accumulated around us. Um, and so, I mean, I'll have conversations with him where he, what was it last month? Maybe it was last month. He took down like a, it was like a $750,000 trade. No, no, he made seven. It, it was, it was, I think, I don't know. It was like, it was like a million dollar trade. Um, it's an absurd amount of money. And I talked to him and I'm like, What's the bump that you feel right now from from like a dopamine increase perspective? Like how much do you feel like it changes? And and he's like, honestly, not that much. Like I know that a couple more things that were sort of floating around that were money stresses are not there nearly to the degree that they were, you know, which is really good to know, you know. Um, but for him, he's like the the needle is moved way more when it comes to how I'm think, how I'm going about my life, how I'm thinking about my day versus making a couple more million in the market. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it's helpful. I know it's helpful for a lot of people in our classes and our community to see it taken to that extreme because people, you know, it's, it's just human nature to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get this whole mindfulness thing. But if I had $5 million, I trust me, I'd be way, way, way happier. And it's like, 
you know, it's not actually, you don't, yeah, it's not you'd actually be, true. You'd be yeah. stoked for a couple of days and yeah, then maybe six you, months. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you'd realize you're still the same person with the same, Oh, there goes the fucking bottle. You'd realize you're still the same person with, you know, still the same character flaws, uh, you know, still the same yeah. family, still the same relationship with your community. Uh, all of those things. It's wild, actually, when you separate yourself from it and you think about, you know, you, you kind of start to learn where happiness comes. You know, just to go back to what you said before, okay? talking about managing your day taking agency right and being the person that determines how you're going to feel on a daily basis having sovereignty over your mind even on days when you are slammed and one of my favorite things to do is if i know i have an overwhelming morning coming up i know i'm working and i've been you know i stay fucking busy and i know i've got a full plate of stuff today and it's going to be you know 12 hours at the computer today without, you know, without many breaks. And I know that I don't wake up and have this feeling of terror anymore. You know, I'll Mm -hmm. wake up and I'll put on like jazz music and I'll sit, I'll sip my coffee and I'll just start to get after it and I'll just go and go and go. And a lot of times I get into a flow just from doing that. That it's like going for a jog. You don't go out and sprint immediately out of the front door. If you're going to run 12 miles, you go out and start at a walk even. And then you just pick it up and your body tells you what kind of pace to go at. And I think that people don't really get that. I think that people, they they get very overwhelmed you know, if Charlie Bathgate gives me a list of 10 things I got to do today, it's a, it's, oh my God, you know, and until all 10 are done... I can't relax. And what you find is if you relax from the start and you embrace it and you say, hey, this is going to take X amount of time. It can't be done any faster than that. So I'm going to have to take this time anyways. I might as well fucking take my time and make my way through it methodically. And then ultimately the quality of your work is better too. Because when you're rushed and you're psychotic, you know, you miss details and um, not to mention the stress that it puts on you. So I thought that was a very good point that you made. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I used to have that. And I had a, a you know moments this year where I looked out at my calendar the next day and I was like, oh, fuck, tomorrow's going to be a stressful day. And you wake up the next morning and you're kind of bracing and you're almost like gearing up for battle, you know? And yeah, you, yeah. The, the, moment, the moment you sit down at your computer is like when the – it's like that scene in Gladiator when the when the gates open up and he walks into the you know into the arena and there's a mace like swinging at his head you know it's like you're rushing into it right away and you're kind of like white knuckling it through the day and trying to like you know karate chop this task and get through this and blah 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 and you know I I had a couple moments where I was like dude it doesn't I don't need to go through the day like this it's not right. it's 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 not changing the work at all it's not it's not like when I get really fired up that my calendar somehow five events disappear off of it, you know, um, and I'm getting to the end of the day and I'm exhausted, right? Why not? You know, I don't put on jazz music, but it's, I have my version of that where I'm just like, just kind of coast, just, just coast into the day. Just, just like take it one thing at a time. Um, it's just a much more enjoyable 
way to go through things. So I that totally resonates with me. Yeah, my buddy that I work with a lot of times he'll uh, message me, you know, early in the morning, seven thirty, seven forty, and be like, "Hey, page twelve of this document. Here's the thing that we missed, whatever." And I send him yeah. messages like that too, you know, randomly because we're we're constantly bouncing things back and forth, and we talk to each other all the time. But I always say good morning to him first, and I always <laughs> ma- I always wait for him to say good morning back, just so that. He knows, like, all right, this is the pace I've adopted for the day, and this is, you know, we're this, two human beings here, like, and, yeah. exactly. And this is, and this is, because I used to, I was telling him yesterday. It was funny too, because we were actually talking about this. I was telling him yesterday. I used to wake up in the morning and I would fucking sit straight up out of bed, you know, like mm. one of those mattresses that comes up from the wall, you know, the, the alarm clock clang. I'm fucking straight up in bed immediately, you know. <laughs> And I'm ready to roll and, you know, I'm sweating by the time I'm downstairs getting my coffee. And I, you know, since I've just tried to adopt a more mindful attitude, I'll really, I'll, you know, I, I don't have an issue. I actually have a routine in the morning where when I go down to get my coffee in the morning, I leave my phone downstairs and my office is upstairs. So I'll get, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is I want to get coffee so I go downstairs, I take my phone, I leave it down there, and I come up and I start to work at the computer, and I don't have my phone to look at, which means I'm not getting, and my phone's on Do Not Disturb all the time anyways, so uh, I'm not getting Twitter alerts, I'm not getting text messages, I'm not getting phone calls, you know, if you want to talk to me, leave a fucking voicemail, and <laughs> I'll come up and I'll work for three, four hours, and I don't let myself go back downstairs and get my phone until the bedroom is made up. So I'll work for four hours, then I'll go in, I'll make the bed, I'll open the windows, I'll fluff the pillows, I'll clean up whatever I was eating in bed at two in the morning the night before. And then once everything has achieved you know, homeostasis up here and I have successfully entered myself unto the day at a pace that I deem uh, beneficial, then I will go down and embrace my phone and say, all right, well, what the fuck else is going on? Okay. Um, And so, and I'm like that too when I, you know, when I go running or when I go to the gym, I'm not looking at my phone. It stays in the car or if I'm using it for music, I will, you know, I'm not looking at it. I'm not, I used to, I used to have conversations when I was jogging. I'd go out for a jog and I'd have a conversation with somebody. You know, a full-fledged 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what I did today. <laughs> you know, like. Oh, my brother does. My brother will do that to me. He'll, do, he'll call me when he's jogging. And I right when I pick up the phone, I can hear him breathing heavily. And I'll just be like, no, no, we're not doing this. It's no, the I'm fucking not, worst. Not it's yeah, the fucking worst. call me later, dude. Yeah, not, not only is it this. terrible for the person you're talking to, but it's terrible for you, too. You know? You, yeah. Your body doesn't know whether or not you're going out for an exercise or having a, you know, conference call. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. I don't know. I think I think embracing the day at your own pace is an important thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, the... I mean, we're not, uh, we're not hitting anything new here about a relationship with your phone, but it is the kind of thing that it is good to be reminded of on a consistent basis. I remind myself of it. Like our, I think our relationships with our phone, I know my relationship with my phone and how I'm 
like existing with it, engaging with it is a very good barometer of where I'm at. If I'm completely drained and stressed out and basically a dopamine fiend, the first thing that I do, even instinct, I, I'm not even conscious of it, instinctively, the moment I take my eyes off my computer screen is I open up my phone and I go to Instagram. And that's like, that's like how I know that I'm at like the bottom of where <laughs> of my yeah. sort of like mentally, you know, uh, my mental state is. And that's what, are you, my brain what are you like, looking for on Instagram? What, what's, what's the best case scenario? When right, you open that's the question. Tell, that, no, that's tell the question me, I want to know. The best case scenario is that I see some shit on like, so there's two, there's two accounts that I think actually give me some degree of pleasure. One of them is called nature is metal. Have you ever seen this? I feel like you would appreciate it. Um, it's this incredible account where it's like images of like a, you know, a lion fighting a pack of hyenas, like, or, um, some crazy insect eating another crazy insect. It's like, this is what nature is. It's violent, it's crazy, it's fascinating. Um, you know, this this is the world that we live in. And it's just so different than all of the image conscious bullshit that you see on Instagram that I, I just kind of love it. Um, so there's that. And then there's like, you know, fail videos on like barstool sports and some drunk dude like walking into a sign that I like derive some sick pleasure. What in is the win that there? Like, what's the win? What do you get from a that? chuckle? It's literally like a chuckle. It's like a laugh. You know, that's that's it. Um, I don't the people who and most of the time I'm scrolling through there and it's even as much as you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram. I I don't follow a bunch of, of bullshit. It's it's almost all bullshit. It's it's crap. Um, and by I can feel my brain is even more drained after like ten minutes on there of scrolling. And there's times I'm like, what do I even what do I even do this for? Like, what, 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 what am I going on here for? I mean, I think you could have. I'm not saying everybody needs to delete. Me, social media and whatnot i think you can have like a healthy relationship with it and just be entertainment but i have become so much more conscious especially during covid of the way that i engage with it and there's times i've noticed times where i'm taking a piss and i take out my phone and look at it while i'm taking a piss like that is how much my brain is like uh, uh-uh, i can't take 10 seconds to just empty my bladder i have to like have some sort of stimulus yeah, while yeah. i'm doing that like that's that's completely ridiculous that's, that's an indicator that you got to chill the fuck out then i need to chill the fuck out and reset and go for a walk and you know relax i find so. myself on instagram constantly criticizing well actually one of the things that i always do is i i will log on and i'll oh okay you know this guy's got a cute baby and you know, this, that, and the other. And then more often than not, my Instagram experience for the day, usually I'm probably on Instagram. I would say maybe once a day. Some days I don't even look at it, but maybe once a day on my personal account, it always ends in coming upon something, whether it's in somebody's story or in their photos and thinking to myself, this person thinks that that was so important that they needed to share it. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. and it, it, it's usually always something stupid that triggers me. Like Instagramming their lunch. Yeah, or their, their lunch. Sometimes it's even more mundane than that. 
you know, or more like off the uh, off the path from that. I can't think of anything, you know, off the top of my head. But yeah, lunch is a good example, right? Okay, ready, ready for this, Charlie? Fucking noodles, <laughs> you know? It's like, all right, hey, what are you doing? I'm having fucking noodles for lunch. Okay, well, who are you? Well, you're somebody I fucking went to high school with that I haven't talked to in 22 years. What do I give a fuck if you're eating noodles for lunch? You could be eating fucking pan-seared salmon. You could be eating the dirt out of my front lawn and the mulch out of my out of my yard for lunch. I mean, for, for all I care. You know, but then I, I always wind up thinking like, well, what... And by the way, I posted my dinner yesterday on Instagram, so I'm guilty as fucking charged here, right? <laughs> guilty as charged. That's awesome. That is awesome. But I'm always thinking, like, I try to get inside that person's head. At some point, yep. this guy thought to himself, I need to take these noodles and I need to download them onto the brain of, you know, a thousand people that are following me. Because oftentimes people you haven't seen for 22 years are wondering what you're having for lunch. Well, this, so actually I've been thinking about this. So how do you, you spend a ton of time on Twitter. Obviously you're, you're have a huge following. How do you mindfully engage with Twitter? Because I've, if, if, if that's even possible, because I've well, experienced, I spend a lot more time on Twitter now than I did six months ago. I think that there, especially when COVID was first start breaking out, like there was a lot of good information that was coming out there that you were not going to get from any sort of, mainstream media or anything like that right but i've also noticed like you know the doom scrolling effect now you 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 just scroll through and you're like wow if i looked at twitter for 20 minutes and i came away and i had to summarize the state of the world to everybody else i'd say we're fucked and that's the conclusion at basically every 20 minute interval you know so how do you do how do you do it how do you do it without twitter's a tool for information so I go on there when I'm looking for information, whether it's on a certain stock ticker or it's on, you know, breaking news or uh, essentially Twitter is my Bloomberg terminal for the most part. Um, I'm on there more than I'm watching the actual live news feed. And Twitter's also very cathartic for me, too. So if I see a headline come across my live news feed, a lot of times I'll just copy it and paste it into Twitter with my two cents that would be echoing in my head, which is usually Dude. something just like, oh, my fucking God, or something like that. <laughs> you know, Mnuchin says loans over $2 million don't need to be paid back. Like today I saw that headline this morning, and I thought to myself, well, that's fucking insane since most people are only getting $1,200 that if you borrowed more than $2 million, that loan's going to be forgiven. So in essence, businesses are getting billions of dollars while you and I stand here and fucking hold each other's schwanzes. I didn't think that was particularly fair. So I wanted right. to make a commentary about that. And then once I made my commentary about it, I knew it was out of my brain and that I was on the record as this is how I feel about it. So to me... Gets it out of my head, and it's yeah. it's cathartic of sorts. And nothing that I write on Twitter. Sometimes people will say stuff like this to me. I write exactly what I'm thinking. I write. Yeah. It's just like my podcast. I say whatever the fuck I want, whatever's on my brain. I don't say anything else. Same with Twitter. I and that was one of the things when I started the podcast, and even prior to that, when I started, you know, my Twitter account. I just wanted to commit to. I just want to be myself. 
I, you know, that's it. Because then nobody can never accuse me of not being myself. And I don't have to remember some bullshit I told, oh, Charlie Bathgate. You told Charlie Bathgate six months ago that you were for low interest rates when you're really not, you know. And uh, so there's just less to remember. And I've often wondered that about people, too. Like, I wondered that about Peter Schiff the first time before I met him in person for the first time. Is this guy like this all the time? I mean, I watch all his lectures. I listen to his podcast. And, you know, saw him at a restaurant after three Manhattans. And, hey, dude was talking the same shit, man. I'm like, well, (laughs) that's how I know. This is this fucking guy, man. He's a constitutionalist. He's a libertarian. He's an Austrian school guy. So right. uh, much no, that's an incredible just... litmus test for uh, for a public figure, man, is if they, you know, are they different behind the scenes, you know, in person versus in, in real life. And I can, you know, from I can tell you for you, that's that's exactly who you are, man. I mean, there is literally no difference in conversations that we've had one on one versus conversations that we've had in the podcast. Um, and that's that's also why. That's got to be a huge reason why your your Twitter following is so so huge, right? I mean, it's just it's pretty much stream of consciousness, um, and that's fascinating. That for you, it's an outlet because for me, like I don't really tweet that much. I just don't. I don't have the the brain space for it. I can't like switch back. It didn't. It just like never came became something that I was gonna. It was gonna be an outlet for me. Maybe it maybe it should. I don't know. Um, but I wonder if there is a correlation there for people who use it as an outlet. If they feel like they have a healthier if it's more uh, productive for them than for people who just consume it. Because I would think for people who are almost entirely just consumers, it might be harder. You know, it might feel like it's not giving them that much utility. So that's interesting. You're on some shit here. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm definitely on some shit. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Charlie, listen, man. It's been two wonderful hours. I would love to explore the far reaches of the universe with you for like six more hours. But the truth of the matter is, I know we both have shit to do. But let's say this, my friend. Can we not make it like fucking nine months or whatever before you come back on? 100%, man. I'm down. I'm down to come on anytime. It's always fucking awesome to talk to you i'm glad that you're uh you're doing what you're doing and uh anytime you'll you'll have me i'm, I'm happy to come on so and you, did, name the place you did better than your counterpart sang lucci who i caught fucking shaving in the middle of his podcast with me <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that podcast no dude that what a degenerate that's amazing are you serious uh, i didn't hear that one that's so absurd but what he didn't like he didn't thing. tell you about it though no, no. He, was probably, he was probably just so embarrassed about well actually he doesn't get embarrassed by that shit but that's amazing so get oh this God. so we're doing a podcast right and i can tell it was just like me and you the last couple of days where we're like we couldn't get a time we couldn't get a date we were both kind of like trying to push it off but not push it off and like we wanted to be polite we both wanted to do it it was like that with right. Lucci. we were really having a tough time lining up it was right when the pandemic started he was flying from pr to boston from boston to pr he was here he was there he just took that fucking half a million dollar loss i mean like Oof. and i could just yep. tell that as soon as i got him on the podcast he was like elsewhere and I was, you can go back and listen to my last podcast with him. So we're talking for like a half hour, 40 minutes and I'm listening to him and I'm like, this dude's just fucking phoning it in. I'm like, he's, he's not here with me right now. Like you and I have been present for most of this conversation. Right. And right. I can tell I'm like, I'm getting kind of like these canned answers. And then at one point unprovoked, he turns around and he says, what I really want to do is I want to ask you a bunch of questions, man. 
tell me what you think about this, 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 and this. And he gave me like four things that I knew that he knew would necessitate super long answers from me, right? Like, he's trying to buy, he's trying to eat up some, some, dude, uh, some, some time. 100%, 100%. Oh so as I'm answering him, I'm thinking to myself, this is why I'm an analyst for a living, by the way. As I'm answering him, I'm thinking to myself, what is he doing turning around and asking me this question? He doesn't want to fucking know, you know, what my thoughts on macro are. He knows what my fucking thoughts on macro are, whatever. And then I guess I went to ask him a question and he was on mute. And so he didn't immediately respond. And then he oh did. And I could say, would you have me on? You had your shit on mute, didn't you? <laughs> You know, and he was like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. And then he asked me another question, but he forgot to hit mute the second time. And all of a sudden, I hear this buzzing in the background, right? You know what? I have a podcast clips channel. I have to make a clip of this and put this up as just a clip. All of a sudden, I can hear it. All of a sudden, I can just hear this in the background. And I'm like, so I'm answering the question. I'm like, dude, I'm like, yeah, you know, Jerome Powell, it's all bullshit. I was just like, dude, are you fucking shaving? You know, and and there's there's this other pause where he realizes he doesn't have me on mute, right? And he's like, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> At least he just owned it. That's the good thing about Lucci. He'll, oh. He has the audacity to pull shit like that. But when you call him on, he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. He's not he's not gonna lie to you about yep. it. And I called him on the whole thing, too. I'm like, you asked me that big, long, stupid fucking question so you would have time to put me on mute so you could shave. That's how much you want to be on the podcast right now. You know? Yeah, that's fucking amazing. You got to you gotta isolate that clip and distribute widely. We'll, we'll, we'll happily retweet it. <laughs> that's amazing. And you got to have a discussion with your business partner about mindfulness, which we just talk an hour about, you know? Oh my God! Trust me, we've had those those conversations, man. That man, moves at, <laughs> that man can move at light speed when he wants to, and when he's deciding he's not moving, he's not moving. So that's uh, he is the determinant of that. That's for sure. Yes, and we love him. We love him for it. So, Indeed. all right, Bathgate, it was real, brother. Let's do it again soon. All right, buddy. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for coming Talk on, you soon, buddy. Man. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. That was yep, yep. There he goes. That was the one. And only Charlie Bathgate, human psychonaut, and uh, some other stuff too. CEO, trader, managing whatever his shit was. Look in the bio. I don't have time to go over it now. All right, folks. It's been a lovely two hours getting in touch with our feelings. But uh, I've got shit to do, so I'm out of here. Peace!